Yes. They're on a double decker. <laughs> uh, I'll have a double decker. Just so loud. It's really. I'll eat mine away from. Can't have one of these in donkey's ears. Can I just say this before we all start? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Too loud? You start, mate. You start. Yeah. Mm. Better than I remember. Yeah, go. No, go on, Baffer. Go. It was a very moving film. <laughs> one man's struggle in. That's not a cinema snack, is it? Hello and welcome to the Little Film Podcast. My name's Adam and with me tonight we've got Ollie. Hello. Dave. Hello. And Patrick. Hello there. And that's it, isn't it? That's the crew. That's always been the crew. That's all we need. I don't remember anyone else. This is it. We're recording this on the night of the Oscars. So uh, well done, everyone. You did uh, follow my instructions and and came along wearing your tuxedos. So it it brings a real kind of uh, class to the proceedings, doesn't it? Uh, but what are we here to talk about? Obviously, as we're recording this, we don't know who's won any of the Oscars, who's won Best Picture. But by the time people are listening to this, they will know. But the favourite for Best Picture is the film that we're talking about tonight. Open Water. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. That's Very good. good. Uh, cross that gag off the list. Yeah. Are you actually doing that? You're actually I've, got, doing that. Yeah, I've got a little, little tick box thing here. Well, saying that, I mean, you've all brought your little notes again, your little notebooks. Uh, Dave was looking through his notes just before we started recording, just yeah. cracking up at, <laughs> at some of the gags that he's written yeah, down. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to those. Although actually, I've he had heard... a similar joke. He said, "Today we're here to discuss shallow howl." <laughs> <laughs> I've actually heard two of Dave's gags already. I've heard them twice already. Actually, Tr- tried them out my mum too, and she thought they were quite funny. So we went to uh, see the film together, didn't we? And uh, you you wheeled out the gags immediately. <laughs> on the drive home and said I'll say those again in the pod yeah and then you've just said them again to me now in the preparation just as a a reminder that I'm going to drop them like they're hot so I'm really looking forward to those yeah no no gags from me tonight though none prepared (laughs) McVeigh has actually promised to make gags on the fly tonight and is promising us that they'll be better than the ones he pre-prepared last time Mm -hmm. it's dangerous can't be any worse the streep of water (laughs) Well, I've already set a real kind of high water mark, if you like, do you get it, uh, with the gag that I made at the top. So it's going to be tough to uh, to emulate that going forward, but we'll see how we get on. But yeah, we are here not to talk about open water, but to talk about the shape of water, otherwise known as the unofficial prequel to Waterworld and or Free Willy for Grown Ups. <laughs> And they, there they are. Those are the two gags. Okay, yeah. get them out of the way. <laughs> if you're not laughing right now in your car or wherever you're listening to this... Shame on you. Yeah, you've, you've lost. Free Willy for Grown Ups is quite a good review. I mean, we could just draw a line under it there. Mm. As ever, I should say that there's going to be spoilers, lots of spoilers. We're really going to get into all the details of the film. So we're going to assume that if you're listening that you have seen it, but I'll just give you a quick synopsis from Rotten Tomatoes just to uh, refresh your memory. From master storyteller Guillermo del Toro comes The Shape of Water, an otherworldly fairy tale set against the backdrop of Cold War-era America circa 1962. In the hidden high-security government laboratory where she works, lonely Eliza, Sally Hawkins, is trapped in a life of isolation 
Eliza's life has changed forever when she and co-worker Zelda, Octavia Spencer, discover a secret classified experiment. Rounding out the cast are Michael Shannon, Richard Jenkins, Doug Jones and Michael Stuhlberg. Why don't we start, like we always do, with our ratings out of ten. Give everyone a flavour of, of where we stand on the film before we get into a deep dive. <laughs> How many water? He thought that was a water gag. Are they going to be? He said that every time. Yeah, okay. Okay. I knew something fishy was going on. Oh, it's good. Yeah. Scale that back. Mm. Yeah. Not as fish good. scales. Yeah. yeah. Oh, fish have scales. Yeah. Okay, that's good. Um, so, out of ten, you've got to say it louder, Dave, because that time you just mermaid it. <laughs> that's kind of pretty good. That's re- that's really cracked on here. <laughs> that's pretty good. <laughs> Guilty. Oh. <laughs> nice. nice. That's response. just saying the word guilty. No, mate. Come it's on. The gills gag. No, I get the yeah. gill part, but what? Who's guilty? Yeah, He's guilty of murmuring, mermaiding. Right. Yeah. Finished. Fin. I mean, we're off to a strong start <laughs> tonight, aren't we? Maybe we should have had Tony here. Mm. Who? No, I don't think so. <laughs> so, out of ten, guys, give us your rating. I'll start with you, Dave. Uh, I'm going to give it an eight out of ten, actually. Ollie? I've gone for an 8.5. Myself? 8. Patrick? 7. Interesting. I just had the feeling that you'd be lower than that because you've mm. made. We don't talk about it before we come in, but you've made a few quite sort of. Uh, Seven's still solid. Unconvinced noises. But you've gone in with a, a pretty strong score there. So we're, yep. we all enjoyed the film, is what mm-hmm. we're trying to say. So those are our scores. Patrick, you're going to give us um, the scores from Rotten Tomatoes, IMDb. And Metacritic, just to give everyone a flavour of, of what you know, what critics are saying. Yes, yeah, so Rotten Tomatoes. It's a very high score. It's ninety two percent. It's eighty seven percent on Metacritic. Again, pretty high and a bit lower, but seven point seven on on uh, IMDb. It's actually quite a bit lower, seven point seven mm. as the as the the public. Well, yeah, and on Rotten Tomatoes, as you say, the, it's ninety two percent from the critics, but it's only seventy seven percent audience score. Is it best picture material, do you think? It is the favourite. As I say, we don't know. By the time people are listening, they will know whether it's one or not. But it is the favourite. Is it? Is it in that kind of uh, league? I'd say the films I've seen in the last year, yes. Um, although you only saw that of, one in yeah, the last Jedi. Guilty of saying that I haven't seen a lot of the Oscar contenders this year. Can you just recap the Oscar? Why are people listening to our podcast? <laughs> we don't really watch a lot of films, but yeah. We've watched three. This one and um, was King Kong was this year or last year? Was it? <laughs> I've only seen this, Last Jedi and Norbit. Out of those three. Well, nominated for Best Picture, uh, we've got The Post, Lady Bird, Get Out, Dunkirk, Darkest Hour, Three Billboards Outside Ebbing, Missouri, Phantom Thread, Call Me By Your Name and The Shape of Water. Okay, so I've seen 60% of those. <laughs> okay, that's not bad. Yeah. It's probably more than the people doing the voting. Yeah, so. mm. uh, yeah, definitely Oscar material. Do you feel though that this is not in terms of compared to the other films this year, but that it'll be looked back on as being like, oh, that was a that's a really strong best picture. Yeah, I think. Well, it depends who wins, really, doesn't it? Because I mean, it may not win. I think mm. there's some of those films which I think are not particularly strong films. Like The Post was a good film that we all enjoyed, but you wouldn't look back and say that was a definite best picture winner and be impressed with it if you were looking through the list of winners. Whereas I feel like Shape of Water actually would be quite a strong contender because you'd look back at it and go, that was quite a unique film. Mm. Like, you would remember it. It's definitely unique, isn't it? Like, I, 
I have to say, I wasn't convinced in the first, like, five minutes. I thought, oh, this is going to be quite twee, isn't so it? So you got through the opening credits and were like, it's not for me. Did you have your little customary nap? Oh, yeah, I've been asleep one? for the first five minutes. Where I was like, I'm not sure how, you know, what I've picked up so far. I don't know how I feel. No, it did. It, I was worried that it was going to be a bit kind of, uh, like, a bit trying too hard. Mm. But actually, like, very quickly, I just kind of got into the swing of it. And I did think, I, I thought it was, they did a great job of creating a atmosphere. Like, it's very um, evocative and very, uh, like, very sort of absorbing world that is built with it that just kind of faint hints at the sort of fairy tale type stuff i mean obviously there's a kind of mythical creature at the center of it but aside from that but the atmosphere they create with like the accordion music and and the sort of the colors in in the apartment i, I thought it was i thought it was very well done he does do colors well like the just the look of his films like pan's labyrinth as well i just remember in pan's labyrinth like the reds and stuff they're so there's so much like good use of colour and like the grapes that she picks and the blood on the mouth of the pale man and all that sort of stuff. It's just really effective. I, I would just say on that thing of it being unique, I think it both is and it and it isn't. I, I, it's not entirely unique in that it shares some things with some um, similarities with Pan's Labyrinth or something like that. And also it's also referencing other films like famously A Creature from the Black Lagoon, which I've never actually seen. But the the design of the of the merman and beauty and the beast as well yeah um well i saw one review that said it was basically amelie crossed with creature from the black lagoon and beauty and the beast yeah mm. so it, you know what i mean it's like it's well it's it, yeah it's a tall odds to do anything entirely unique yeah but, um it has influences maybe in sure. tone it's quite unique and and it's got a difference with between um shape of water and pan's labyrinth and in, in pan's labyrinth the fantasy stuff is in her mind possibly up for debate but it's basically that it's her imagination and then that's sort of juxtaposed with what's going on the horrors in the the real um setting and then this one's actually sort of got fantasy within that you're supposed to believe as being part of part of it you're talking about pan's labyrinth because obviously we haven't said that this is guillermo del toro and that's one of his previous films yeah so yeah <laughs> what do we want to say about it uh, probably we could start with the performances, the mm-hmm. actors. Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought they were all really, really good. Uh, Fishman aside, obviously you don't get too much emotion from him through all the prosthetics or whatever that's been applied. But um, Michael Shannon in particular, I'd pick out for doing his usual really good villain, mm. uh, very intense sort of character, very scary. And I, 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 you know, nod to Sally Hawkins as well for, for her performance in that michael shannon is the sort of government agent who's kind of torturing and ends up wanting to kill and dissect the creature and the one that they're basically trying to hide the creature from mm. but i thought he was quite a quite a properly thought out character he wasn't just a nasty villain but you get to see a bit of his like home life and you know he goes to like purchase a car and you can kind of understand what's important to him as a character and his relationship with his bosses and things like that, which is why he's pressured into being this type of, of person. Um, he's, which, he's, he's just a nasty man though, isn't he really? He's, I, I, I thought he was seriously creepy. Um, I noticed you used the word usual for Michael Shannon and maybe that's 
can be both a criticism or a or a positive because he you does mean, that very well. You mean he's playing his usual bad yeah. guys? Um, it's a, you know like a the typical Michael Shannon role. Um, he's the best bastard in the business, basically. He's, he's, he's very, um, very is he is he typecast now? <laughs> scary. Mm. It, like we were talking about the other week with Tom Hanks with the Post. Obviously, very different role, but it was that thing that. Is Tom Hanks being Tom Hanks? Is this the case? Another case where it's Michael Shannon being Michael Shannon? Well, I, the first not. thing the first thing I saw Michael Shannon in was not a particularly hyped movie called Shotgun Stories, and he's the main character. But yeah, it's actually a really really good film. It's like a kind of um, it's like a sort of modern set western in a sense, and a really neglected family or neglected by their dad, and sort of warring with neighbors in the deep south of America. Uh, and he plays quite a different role there. He's like a sort of strong, uh, the older brother who the other two look up to and things. And he's he was brilliant in that. But still, you you can't che- you can't choose your face. And he just does have like Willem Dafoe. I always I always think of those two together because can you imagine like waking up in the middle of the night and Michael Shannon's like standing over your bed? Absolutely terrifying. If you had to choose Dafoe or Shannon standing over your bed at night. I'd probably choose Defoe. Defoe? No, creepy, creepy Defoe. Uh, Jermaine or Willem? <laughs> creepy Defoe. Um, yeah, he he. What he does so well is the like terrifying thing. Is that particularly tense scene where he goes around to Zelda's house uh, to ask her, you know, basically get information out of her, and her husband, Zelda's husband, there, who is utterly useless. You know, he's literally got Zelda pinned up against the wall, or is threatening her and her husband is literally just sat in his chair doing nothing because he's just absolutely terrified of this guy and it's is a very very convincing scary man it's that point about the threat of violence often being worse than mm. violence itself and you get the feet funnily enough watching this because it's Guillermo del Toro and again because of Pan's Labyrinth and it did prove to be the case once or twice, but you you realise that though this has sort of elements that might be attractive to younger viewers, because it's Guillermo del Toro, you realise there could be horrific violence or that anything could happen. And because it's Michael Shannon, you know, from playing things like, is it Ice Iceman? Yeah, he's um, Iceman and also like the, the sort of scary FBI agent in Boardwalk Empire and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, and you just think that threat, he's so threatening in scenes like that. And and his and they did do that well, his mannerisms with like the sweets that he has and um, just the way he sort of uses his eyes as an actor and stuff. I think he's, he's he is, I'd like to see him in films. Like I, I, yeah. I really do like Michael Shannon. He's, he's, a, he's a real presence on screen. What you say about the, the threat of violence being scarier than the violence itself, I think that's true. Although I did think the violence in this film was really well done. Like, it it wasn't cartoonish at all. It was pretty horrifying. Like, the bit um, at the end when uh, Michael Stuhlbarg's character gets shot in the face and then Michael Shannon, like, puts his finger through the bullet hole in his yeah, cheek. and that's drags classic him across. Del Toro, it, I it's think. It's pretty like, horrifying. And also, um, one thing that I thought was really well done and really kind of sinister and nauseating throughout was Michael Shannon's fingers turning slowly blacker and blacker as it went on. You know, the fingers that was really that had been grim. reattached yeah. and were not sort of, were not... Rotting. Yeah, basically. were rotting. And, it, and it's also, you know, there's the metaphor there of him as a character sort of slowly corrupting as well. And I, I thought that was really well done. Even the, like, the torture scenes with the amphibian man uh, were pretty shocking. I know it was the, like, it was like a cattle prod kind of thing, wasn't it? And he just kept electrocuting but even that i found quite uncomfortable to watch but he that's what 
del toro does so well is he like carves out these amazing fantasy worlds and experiences and just out of nowhere there's a sudden be this like shocking scene of violence which just completely throws you off guard i don't know if you remember pan's labyrinth it's been a while since i've seen it i can't remember the character's name but when the general bottles there's the two farm peasants, worker two and it peasants is the peasants and it's like just horrendous and it but it's out because you you feel like comfortable and a bit uneasy at the same time and just as it like lures you into sort of sense of comfort and like yeah I'm, you know we're enjoying this all of a sudden there's this just this shocking scene of violence which happens a couple of times in the mm. shape of water i'd say as well that um as you just pointed to ollie like the some of the wounds on the uh, um um, what are we going to call him? Fishman. On the Fishman. Uh, in on on the fish IMDb, man? he's actually referred to as the Amphibian Man. Okay. Well, the Fishman. <laughs> no, the Amphibian Man. So he has all these wounds and things. And quite a lot of the violence, therefore, is off screen, which I think is good as well. It's, it's, it's like I have, as you know, I have quite sort of mixed feelings about director like Tarantino or something. You get the feeling that a lot of directors or like a Game of Thrones style thing of you just show all of that. Like you just show each time he's like beaten. Um, and you don't really need to. You, you, it's more subtle, and if you just see like glimpses of it, was, and then you see moments of violence, like 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 you say, which are which are shocking. And it it's, it's a weird comparison, but it reminded me a tiny bit of a film I, I really love, a history of violence, where bad characters appear, and in a in a second there can be just horrible violence, and it's just memorable and off putting, but in a kind of way which violence should be. It's not gratuitous, is it? No. It's like it serves a purpose in the yeah. story. Now, I was just to say, I remember uh, watching an interview a while ago with, do you remember Nicholas Winding Refn, who made Drive? His films are known for moments of pretty shocking violence. And he said that it was always his purpose with violence. In real life, violence is just very instant and like brutal, uh, like spontaneous. Like these these moments in life just happen where it's, it can be horrendously violent. It had the similar thread in that in The Shape of Water where there was, yeah, there was these moments and you were like, you could sense something was bad was going to happen, but it really does throw you off a little bit, just how graphic and quite sharp, uh, shocking and dark it can be. But I think while the violence is like an important part of the, the film and the tension that it creates and everything like that, I suppose it's almost misleading to talk about it too much because the film, I guess, at the heart of it is uh, is a love story. Mm. And a fairy tale. And a fairy tale between sort of two outsiders, I think might be distractingly so for the, the majority of cinema goers, which is perhaps why it's got a, a lower score for the general public versus critics in the, in the Fishman and then obviously Sally Hawkins' mute character, uh, a bit more relatable and human. Can you just clarify that? You mean it's distracting... You, you said it was distractingly so. What what was distracting? In that I think people would find it difficult, even though the film is about acceptance uh, and being able to see what people are like, if they're able to sort of feel and communicate what makes them any different to you or I. Mm-hmm. And, and the film is trying to make that point. But I think some people would actually find it quite difficult. So, for example, you know, we should talk about it, fish sex uh, in the film. I think some Am- amphibian sex. Amphibian sex. Yeah. I think people. I you said it as in like we should talk about fish sex, the film, as if like, that's a film. It might be a film. It's a little project I'm working on. <laughs> yeah. It's a sequel. Yeah, but I think home that movie. Some people will find it too much of a jump. A prono. 
That's good. <laughs> that is actually pretty that good. There good. we go. Spontaneous gags, Ollie. That's the way to go. Nailed it. <laughs> he read that out of a book. <laughs> out of Dave's book. So, as you say, it's very much a fairy tale and a love story at the heart of it. And we talked about the performance of Michael Shannon, but the performance of Sally Hawkins as well is pretty astounding, really, in a lot of ways, in the kind of the range of emotions that she conveys without saying a word. Well, apart from one mm. scene, sort of dream sequence, without saying a word. And as you say, they're, they're, they are two outsiders. I thought that was quite cleverly done as well, that actually all the characters in the centre of the film are outsiders in one way or another. She's mute. Richard Jenkins's character is gay. We've got uh, the black woman in Zelda and the fish man, the amphibian man. You're talking about these ideas and themes of acceptance. Um, but there's also a real strong theme of loneliness, uh, sorry, lon- loneliness running throughout the film as well, because all the main characters in it are in some way very lonely. Mm. So you've got Eliza, who's obviously very lonely. You've got uh, you've got uh, Zelda. Zelda, she's lonely too. She's very lonely. Well, her so husband, very lonely. husband is useless and yeah. does yeah, nothing. Yeah. Uh, but you do make a good point. They are all lonely, I think. Mm. And uh, Giles as well, obviously. He's lonely, lonely in his flat. Even um, Michael Stuhlbarg's character, the, uh, the, yeah. the Russian agent, good pronunciation. Is uh, and arguably Michael Stuhlbarg, Michael Shannon's character is, as well. Like how it's quite clear, is no one gets who he is mm. and why he is like he is. So I think Richard Jenkins was my favourite thing in it. He's the the, the neighbour. Yeah, the neighbour who's uh, gay and who is sort of struggling illustrator for adverts, basically, isn't he? And yet. Well, my my score is partly based on the fact that I think though, I think he's a brilliant actor, and I really loved him in. Um, if, I don't know if you ever watched Step uh, Brothers. Six, <laughs> Step Brothers, yeah, yeah, this very moving movie called Step Brothers. Uh, really poignant performance in that. But no, I was thinking of his role in Six Feet Under. Actually, he, he plays the dad in Six Feet Under the the, the series, and uh, he was brilliant. But my general feeling about the movie or parts of the movie is that it sort of tried to do too much, I think. And it tonally was quite odd, though I think he performs them well, the scenes in the in the diner um, with the man who he's attracted to and some of the parts about his struggling business and things. I just didn't feel, I didn't feel it tied together that well. It was like a lot of strands going on, which for me didn't, weren't that coherent. Yeah, I think that's an interesting point because there was two things for me that I spent a lot of the film waiting for, actually, thematically. The first thing, because you have that whole opening sequence where everything is underwater and she's in her apartment. I actually spent a lot of the time after that point in the film thinking, how are they going to flood this city? Like, what what's going to happen with that? Yeah, and then it's going to end up back at that yeah, the, opening scene, yeah. But it just never came back around to that. So when it ended, it was like, oh, okay, that was weird. And the other thing being Michael Shannon's sort of obsession with her um, as a mute because, you know, he's trying to sort of quiet his wife when they're, you know, making love and stuff. I thought there was going to be a sort of culmination of that aggression, which never actually came to the fore either. It was just sort of like it was building and then the film was just like, ah, we won't finish that off. We'll just... You mean that he was going to, like, assault her? Yeah, assault her Mm. or or try something really untoward, and then that would be a part of the film's culmination. But it just didn't lead that way. It was almost like a string leading you one way, and then the film took you another. So you're right, Patrick. There were, there were like a lot of threads, weren't there? And it's quite interesting in a way that that is the case, or it's maybe a weakness of the film, firstly because there was 
perhaps too much going on, but also because there were some aspects of the film, some sort of very central aspects that possibly could have done with a bit more fleshing out. So the relationship between Eliza and the amphibian man, um, Ollie's nodding at me there for saying the right thing, was maybe, like, obviously, by the end, you do kind of root for them and it's it's a relationship that you you are sort of invested in. But it does happen quite quickly, I mm. think, at the beginning of the film, that she suddenly goes from being sort of curious as to who this, what this creature is, to them having this relationship. And you don't see... You almost feel like there are probably some deleted scenes that they cut for time because you don't see them flesh out that relationship quite well enough, I felt. That was... Um kind of one of the strengths of the film that I thought was the actual pacing of it. Like there were no moments where I felt it dragged, but at the same time, it was kind of a hindrance for the film as well, because like you were just saying, the relationship between Eliza and the amphibian man does develop very, very quickly. Um, I guess maybe that was to do with, he wanted to keep the, the pace of the film going as opposed to exploring that too much. Well, also, I suppose it's one of those things that you sort of, as a viewer, you know where it's going. So maybe he just thought, well, mm. everyone knows that this is what is going to happen, so let's just get on with it. But We've talked recently about a few movies and various TV series where they have such scope that maybe not enough time's given to each, maybe each individual narrative or um, a theme. And that's, I maybe didn't articulate well enough, but that's, this movie has a lot in it and a lot of, you know, there's a, there's this incident where the the guy working in the diner um, realizes that the older guy's gay, and just as that's sort of happening, he also like kicks out a couple of black patrons of the cafe and stuff. And it's like it's pointing to something there, but I'm not sure. And then in terms of tone, you've got things like that, and then you've got there's the really bizarre sequence, the dream sequence where I I don't know what you call that, but like where they 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 do the dance in black mm. and white. I think it's admirable and it's a brave thing to do. And the entire movie is, I think, is very brave because it runs the risk, the whole thing, of being completely ludicrous. And I think it kind of walks that that sort of tightrope. It teeters at times, it? It, it? does, because you, you watch it and you're thinking, I am watching, yeah, like, as you say, fish sex or, like, this kind of elaborate dance between these things. And yet you've got the moments of like yeah the thing with the bullet hole through the cheek is really grim in fact even more horrible than that i I found was the rotten fingers when Mm. he rips them off Mm. and then uh, i know this is an odd thing to bring up but um i mentioned color before but it was really quite strange to me that it's it's good imagination but that thing of like how many bits of pie he has in his fridge all these identical identical like absolutely luminous green key lime pie bits of key lime pie and it's 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 just odd to me thinking of like when they thought that that was like oh how should we explore this this man's like uh, sexuality and stuff and well, it's just a display of his desperation isn't it no I know but he's but, lonely isn't yeah, he yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> but 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 through the thing of half of half eaten seemingly quite unrealistic looking bits of pie it's just it's just yeah but I've never seen a pie look like that but no. unrealistic what? pie there's one mark off <laughs> very strict very strict you'd have given it eight otherwise yeah. What did you think about the fish sex? Now, that's a question I never thought I would ask. But I, for me, I just thought I know, too far. maybe that was a bit too much, the fact that they have sex. I mean, we don't actually see it, do we? But I mean, the fact that it, it happens in the story. Yeah. And they, they also then talk about it. And she mm. talks about the fact that he, the fish, the amphibian man has a penis. Mm. I actually found that quite 
funny though that that's quite charming when she's having the banter with her with her colleague uh, Zelda afterwards about it. I thought it felt quite real to me, but uh, the actual fish sex itself. I thought it was done quite well when I heard about that being in the film. And I, I didn't watch any of the trailers or anything. The only thing I'd heard about before I watched the film was fish sex. Wait till you see it. But, uh, <laughs> but you don't... But that you was don't... the tagline for the film, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> I was on all the posters. Wait but till I, you see it. I thought it was quite classily done. And I think to that point that you made about it teetering on the point of ridiculous, that it didn't go over into ridiculous there. Like, I think that that's kind of why the film for me works because there's all these individual elements and it does teeter but it it just about pulls it all off what what went too far for you the like act of it or the idea of it i think the act of it and the fact that it was so kind of like well this might be the wrong choice of word but so kind of like nakedly the focus of what was happening i suppose like in a way it's quite it's quite good it's quite a sort of novel idea and the the fact that it would be presented in the film. And it, it obviously is in previous uh, incarnations of this kind of m- woman falls in love with monster story, like King Kong, for example. Like, that is, like, presumably the kind of uh, subtext of that is that she does want to have sex with him, mm. but it's not Very directly practical. referenced. So the fact that they did, it was it was quite a mm. sort of original twist on it. But it just, for me, it was a bit like, it, it was just a bit too much. To go, to go on that point, it's both funny and quite brave it's also just makes you think of how many stories there are like that where we just don't it's just not something which is discussed it's like the little mermaid or like beauty and the beast or as you say king kong as part of romantic love is sex but you just don't necessarily want to think about like the mechanics of like a half fish Mm. you know and, and they do sort of address that and they, the way they kind of get away with that i think in the film is that obviously his his design he doesn't have he doesn't have a penis like flapping about. <laughs> Again, it retracts. Yeah, I know. So that's what I mean. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, I know. <laughs> there's, there's, there's that thing of you know, like because you see a, a, a toy bear in something, or you know, uh, the idea of people in cartoons and stuff like that. Like they don't, or like kids' toys, they don't do that bit. They just leave it blank, and they do sort of do that in the film. They kind of just like, oh, there's nothing there, but yet they come up with this sort of elaborate thing about like, oh no, like you know. There, there is something down there. As I say, on, on the subject of the amphibian man, one of the sort of things I would say I was disappointed with, but I would felt like I would have liked to have learned more about him and his origins, where he came from. That was kind of brushed over a bit. It was just like, oh, we found him in the Amazon. We brought him in as a weapon for the Cold War. It was also not entirely clear why they were so interested in him. Mm. They were like, well, he, well, was the reason they, were, they gave was that he could breathe... Well, it's the he healing is really incredible. Yeah. Well, that, no, no, no. But, but they, at the end of the film, it becomes clear that he can heal, but they don't know that. Like, so once we've seen the whole film, you can understand that they would be really interested in it, but they don't know that he can do that healing mm. thing until Michael Shannon shoots him and then he's like, oh, you are a god. But at the beginning, it's just basically that he can breathe air and underwater, yeah, which yeah. is like an interesting thing that they'd be interested in. But the fact that they were so, and like the Russians were so desperate to get their hands on it, I don't just, know wasn't that clear to me just on the point of that and talking about the uniqueness one word well hyphenated x-men it's basically the theme of x-men that thing of like we don't when and in lots of other things actually that thing of like we don't understand this that's where there's a bit of cliche i think in that as well it's um and i'm not usually one to lament this sort of thing but the thing of like oh american generals and stuff kill it kill it you know it's just 
immediately not like learn from it just it's threatening to us because we don't fully understand it just wipe it out they do that in this and i think that is it's maybe a slightly tired theme trope yeah if i was to ask you is this del toro's best work yes or no bear in mind that del toro is obviously directed blade 2 um hellboy 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 2 um Pan's labyrinth, labyrinth crimson was it crimson peak Mm. Would you say this is his his best work? I loved Pan's Labyrinth. I really like this film as well. I think this one slightly edges it for me. I much preferred Pan's Labyrinth, definitely. Pan's Labyrinth. Yeah. Baff? I've never seen Pan's Labyrinth, so... Have you seen Blade 2? No. Have you seen Hellboy? No. I think this might be the only Guillermo del Toro film I've ever seen. So probably your favourite then. <laughs> yeah. um, can I just point, uh, point out just something on the... Um, so this is the, the plot according to Wikipedia, how it how the how their account of the plot starts. I found this interesting. So it says like um, Eliza Esposito, found in a river as an orphaned child with mysterious scars on her neck, is mute and communicates through sign language. Do you find to you that's quite a strange way of starting the synopsis? Because I I mean I, I remember the the opening of the film is the the flooded like that's what happens, mm-hmm. and yet. Certainly, if this was a plot like without spoilers, the fact that they immediately point to like the scars in her neck, you're kind of saying like, "Oh, is that sounds a bit like gills or something?" Whereas when that kind of, to me, when that happened at the end of the film, when he like lets her makes her breathe underwater, that's kind of a beautiful moment. It sort of explains well, partly explains her connection to him, apart from the fact that they're both kind of outsiders because of because of their, you know, her muteness and and his. Um, his state his being a fish his yes. being a fish and um and then yeah but there's also this other link of basically that well whatever you want to think there i think like is she she's sort of like part mermaid or whatever as yeah, well is she um, a stranded mermaid i i think you, to it, me it might have that moment where he makes her breathe through her gills i wasn't like hugely impressed with that moment because i think it would have worked better for me if it had been explained why she had those scars like if if it had been clear that, you know, she'd had some horrific attack when she was a child or something, I don't know. But then the fact that he made her breathe, it would have been like, oh, well, this is, it would have just tied it together more nicely. But we never really know why she's got those scars. And it's just, well, they're literally just there so that we can have that moment at the end, if you see what I mean. This part of the thing of, of found in a river as an orphan child and mysterious scars on her neck, I might just be being forgetful, but I don't remember. Like, that isn't shown. I don't remember the sound in a river. But that's what's strange. Like, that's what I mean about Mm. this synopsis is that had it started with that, then the whole thing, it would have kind of ruined it in a way, I think, because it's like, you're always thinking, okay, she she has some. Maybe she's a mermaid. Yeah. Yeah. Again, I wonder if there are quite a lot of deleted scenes from this film, possibly. Mm. There's one thing I was actually going to bring up. Uh, Obviously, with the Oscars happening tonight, there's been a lot of press around all the various films which are up for best picture. Uh, There has actually been a bit of backlash the last few weeks about the film. I actually came across an article on Huffington Post, how the shape of water makes people uh, with disabilities feel less human. The idea being that Eliza with this disability should or has found someone who's not disabled but has uh is, isn't right either like mm. i was just gonna bring that up and i didn't really think of that at all when i watched the film and it didn't really that feels like stretching a bit yeah I, I would say so because i think also the perception of that fish character at the end of the film is that 
you know, there's that bit where he gets called a god, but actually he's able to heal. He can live outside and inside water. Why, why are we saying that humans are any better than he is? Mm. Uh, I think that's the whole idea of the film. Is yeah. Perhaps if the criticism were that it's condescending because we're comparing someone who essentially chooses not to speak, that they're sort of comparing that to what some people could see as like a monster, mm. then, then maybe... But as you say, it's stretching, and it's, yes. that's, that's about the climate think, of, of as, being offended. As Dave says, it's like it becomes clear that well, the, the humans in the story are often portrayed quite negatively, like Michael Shannon. Mm. Um, okay, well, we're, we're coming towards the end here, so um, if everyone's uh, said everything that they have, you've gone through all your notes, Dave, you've, you've cracked out all the gags you wanted to... He got those out yeah, quick uh, at the start. Thumbs, thumbs up mm. from Dave. So, um, so why don't we... Uh, yeah, well, why don't I ask you, are, are you... Are you happy with the after all that discussion? Are you happy with the the score that you gave it at the start? What did we have? We were me and Dave were both eight, Ollie eight point five, and and Patrick seven. Have, have any of us moved at all? For me, it was a film that was very very difficult to give a score to because, as I say, I really admire doing something so brave and largely, I think, succeeding in not not letting it descend into something uh, ridiculous and and boring. I think it, it is. It is successful, and and it's strange to compare. It's it's tricky to compare that to something like The Post or Darkest Hour, which are kind of so different because they're just sort of very solid. I think most people would give them relatively similar scores. Whereas I guess I reckon if you saw like um, the individual ratings of like thousands of people on IMDb, there would be lots who gave this sort of one or two out of ten, and there'd equally be ones who thought it was pretty much perfect. And I watched it with. Um, my girlfriend, Sana. And uh, she, so she, she um, I think she gave it like five and she still enjoyed it, but she said for her, she couldn't kind of, she couldn't get past, like it wasn't sort of real to her. It didn't quite work. And I think it does, Suspension it, of it does just, it does just, yeah, as I say, kind of walk that, walk that line. And for me, it just, it just tried to do a bit too much, but like seven, uh, you know, relatively harsh markers. I would say that was one of its strengths that, for me, it like he has such a great way of creating this world where like fantasy and real life sort of mold into one. So I thought that was a real strength. Like the ridiculousness of it, if you like, didn't bother me at all. The only thing that hindered it a little bit for me was just, although the pacing was really good, as I said, it was like at times it detracted a bit maybe from the story where I feel like they could have dived a bit deeper into plot points and characters a bit more. Mm. So I would have got a bit more from it. That was yep. my only major criticism of the film what what i mean just very quickly that the thing of the themes is like you know it's the things to do with the cold war to do with race relations to do with gender sexuality humor um his struggling job it's just there's so much there that perhaps by definition you feel it's not all explored and especially as you say that's but it is a strength that it's kind of two hours whatever it is it doesn't drag at all uh just for me something like something like pan's labyrinth just a bit more coherent and a bit more focus on and just somehow yeah. seems as more there it's more of a world created this occasionally i think flitted over some of these themes but like i still thought it was good I, yeah i agree it, it does set a lot of things in motion doesn't it and doesn't always then then follow them up dave yeah i think i, I like the ambition of it i thought it was really well executed enjoyed the performances enjoyed the music um i think it, it just Although the heart of the film is there, I think it didn't connect with me enough that I would want to give it a 10 out of 10. I don't think it was a perfect film, but uh, I really enjoyed the scope of it. I thought it was it was very good. And I think, it, you know, if it won the Best Picture Oscar, I would 
have absolutely no issue with that versus some of the other films that I've seen. I think, you know, it was very good. It's also that thing of um, just, you know, you said before about the fact it's, it is different. You know, it's something new. It's not a. It's not a sequel. It's not a like a franchise film. I, I just really like seeing it's original. Just some some different. Until stuff. we see that prequel that McVeigh wants about the origin story of the uh, amphibian man. Yeah. Fish sex the early years. <laughs> um, yes, I I agree. I think it, it's 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 one where I sort of afterwards in thinking about it, and particularly in thinking about it for this, I thought of a lot more criticism of it than I felt at the time. Like. There are, I agree that there are t- possibly too many threads, too many things going on. Something like the fish sex was a bit unnecessary, that m- at times it may have veered a bit too far into the kind of magical element or the, the fairy tale stuff. I, I wasn't totally uh, buying into that sort of dream sequence with the dancing and the singing. And so so I, there are criticisms that I could think of, but while I was watching it, I was completely immersed in it and really gripped and wanting to know what was going to happen. I just really enjoyed the two hours. So uh, I think it was a very... Very solid eight for me. Okay, well, just before we wrap it up, I think, Dave, you were going to give us a, a quick review of a, another movie that you've seen at the cinema recently. Uh, yeah, no, I saw I saw Black Panther uh, recently to do a, to do a Tony because he's not here. I'll we didn't really address that, did we? The fact that Tony's not here. It- yeah, so to- one of Tony's all-time favourite films is, is, uh, is Pan's Labyrinth. And he was really, really excited about The Shape of Water coming out and talking about it, um, but... He's had a, a month to see the film and just hasn't got around to it. So um, I picked up the equipment from him on the way here, and he said, "Don't banter me off too much." Yeah, I'm, I'm sure. Said, I'm sure. I he... said, "Don't worry, you know us. We won't." Yeah, <laughs> yeah. he'll enjoy the film when he gets around to watching it. But uh, yeah, in, in homage to Tony, I watched the film when I was in Eastbourne uh, at the Cineworld. There, Screen One, good selection of uh, pick and mix. What did you go for? Uh, I well, I went. I went for everything. Astro belts, you know. I, I had too many sweets. I Rebels. Felt, I felt very sick afterwards. Um, but it didn't put off. Didn't put me off the film. So just a really quick review of it. Um, I'd give it a sort of six point five. I would say. I think for people who are fans of Marvel, and Ollie's giving me the eyes here because he is a big fan of Marvel films, they will really enjoy it. But I think if you are coming from the outside, there's a lot of hype around this film in the same way that there's a lot of hype there was a lot of hype about the Wonder Woman film because obviously that had a female heavy cast it was directed by a by a woman and it's the same thing with this film you know a, a black director black all black cast pretty much um with the exception of you know Tim from the office a bit like there was Dawn from the office in the Wonder Woman film um so nice to see they're both getting out and about in the blockbusters um but sort of Taking that aside, that element of it, which is why I think it's had a you know a lot of hype recently, it's a very beautiful film to watch. The world building is very interesting, but when it kind of boils down to it, it is actually just very much a generic Marvel film, like with the you know the end battle at the end, very CGI heavy uh, and not particularly exciting. There's some really interesting characters in it, particularly the bad guys um, and the female warriors. You said Michael B. Jordan was very good. Michael B. Jordan is is unbelievable in it. He's very intimidating uh, physically, but as an on-screen presence, I think he's he's brilliant. I think probably one of the reasons the film isn't as good as it could have been is that Chadwick Boseman, who plays like his opposite number in the film, who is the Black Panther, is for me not particularly charismatic and nowhere near as charismatic as as Michael B. Jordan. Or even Andy Serkis, who is a is a villain in it as well. Essentially, just to wrap it up, if you if you like Marvel films, you'll love this one. You'll probably think it's really original. It is a good film. It's not a great film. 
Um, and it'll be interesting to see how... I don't follow the Marvel films too much. I've watched most of them. But it'll be interesting to see how they fit this character into the world of all the others because they've now got, I don't know, about 10 leading characters that I think are all going to come together in uh, Avengers Infinity War. I suppose that was another thing about it. I've already seen the trailer for Avengers Infinity War. So there was nothing... There's no peril for the main character in this right. film because I was like, well, I know that in two months' time he's going to be one of the stars of another film. So, yeah. But yes, as someone who doesn't like Marvel movies, there's no real reason for me to go and see it. Not really, no. Mm. Um, although it is a standalone film in that they don't try and tie it too much into the, the wider Marvel world. If you wanted to go see a sort of uh, action blockbuster, high spectacle, and not need to know about all the other stories, this would be a good one to go watch, a bit like, Guardians of the Galaxy. Is it good fun? It's generally quite good fun. Because that's the that's the bizarre thing of something like um, Man of Steel, Man of Steel yeah. or Batman. Like they, they just they take it they take it so seriously. Yeah. A film that's that's ludicrous. Um, they don't. It's, so it's just no enjoyment. Whereas Michael you know, Shannon's in that. The it? Iron. Uh, yeah, he Zod. Is. Zod. Uh, it all comes full circle, doesn't it? For some films like that, you would just want them to be apparently having a good time. Like that's what I think. One of the things that people really love about Iron Man is that it's just like it's, it's quite good fun. I think generally speaking, somewhere in between. Like it doesn't take itself too too seriously. Like in the same way that like a Batman v Superman doesn't, which is just horrible. It's a much much better film than that. I wouldn't bracket it alongside that. I wouldn't say it's quite as sort of silly fun as something like an Iron Man or a Guardians of the Galaxy. Um, it's probably a bit more like a Captain America where the main character probably isn't that funny, but with the supporting cast around him, like you get an element of that. You know, Certainly having Martin Freeman in there brings that element to it. He plays as like a CIA agent um, who's sort of like along for the ride, kind of getting to experience all this sort of stuff as an outside character. And I think that's probably where you get most of that from. Just to give us perspective, like what what would you give something like Captain America? Uh, I think Captain America 2, I think The Winter Soldier is one of the better Marvel films because I think as a, as a film, it works best. It's sort of like a political thriller while also being a sort of Marvel action film, mm. you know, high octane. It's got a very good pace to it. I, I would put this film on just a, a bracket below that Talking about Marvel films, you've probably got Iron Man, Guardians of the Galaxy, and Captain America Two, which are kind of up on the sort of top level. I'd I, like to, I'd like to throw in uh, Thor Ragnarok in that level as well, which I watched this week, which yeah. I thought was superb. I haven't seen Thor Ragnarok yet, but I'm I'm certain that that's probably brilliant because it's got Jeff Goldblum in it. <laughs> <laughs> what what, what, what was he been in? <laughs> yeah, I can't remember. Independence Day Two, um, The Fly. But I think um, it's probably just on the level below that. If you, you know, Jurassic Park as well. Was he in Jurassic Park? Yeah. Have you seen Jurassic I, I Park, think Dave? Dave had forgotten that he was in Jurassic Park. <laughs> I was going to try and not mention it today, actually. <laughs> <laughs> He's just eating Monster Munch. Getting too hungry. And, and, and on that Monster Munch bombshell, we'll probably end we my are, review of Black Panther there. We are very much coming to the end here. Uh, well, just before we go, very quickly, as I say, is the Oscars tonight? I mean, probably by the time this comes out, you know, people would be very much in the rear view mirror. Next year's Oscars. Uh, but I just thought... Well, let's do our predictions thought as well. Be, what would be quite a fun little exercise uh, is if I give you the best picture winner from each of the last 10 years, and I want you to tell me which is the best film and which is the worst film from and this list. Can I add one more thing? As you say them, we should very quickly say our score for them. Okay. 
This was happening last night. We, we were all out last night, weren't we? Mm. Spent probably two to three hours, would you say? Just, just someone would shout the name of a movie and everyone would have to give the I screen. enjoyed that. It was really good fun, yeah. I like, drifted away for a while, came back, and just you were still going, cool runnings, 7.5. <laughs> Space Jam. <laughs> um, all right, so I'm going to give you uh, the best picture winners from 2008 to 2017. So starting in 2008 with No Country for Old Men. Nine. 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 Then Slumdog Millionaire. 8.5. Nine. Eight. The Hurt Locker. Eight. 7.5. 7.5. The King's Speech. Eight. 8.5. Really, like 8.5 to nine. Yeah, maybe 8.5. We're up to 2012 now. The Artist. Didn't see it. Uh, I'd, I'd probably give that an 8.5. Is that the silent movie? Yeah. An 8 for me. Yeah. Argo? Six. 6.5. I'm going to give it a 9. Wow. 6 for I'm me. I can't believe that one best picture. It was so gripping. You know well, no, we brilliant. clearly both disagree with you. <laughs> I really enjoyed that. Yeah. I really enjoyed Argo. Up to 2014 with 12 Years a Slave. I haven't seen that. Uh, 8. <sighs> I need to sit again, but like 7.5, I think. Birdman? Nine. 9.5 for me. Oh, interesting. 8.5. Spotlight. Another Michael Keaton film. Oh, I did see Spotlight, actually. Yeah. Watched that recently. I'll give uh, that an 8.5. Nine for me. Yeah, 8.5. We talked about that one with the post, didn't we? It's a bit. And finally, last year's winner, Moonlight. Oof. Seven. Wow. Seven. Eight. <laughs> um, well we could probably go back through and, and statistically work out what you said was the best and the worst but just as a gut feeling what's what's your what's your best film from that list Ollie I think you gave nine to Argo and No Country for Old Men and No Country for Old Men yeah um, so one of those two yeah probably No Country for Old Men is, is La La Land not in that uh, no, because it didn't win, did it? It didn't win. If La La Land was in there, La La Land would be my you favourite. came out of that and said La La Land was like one of the three best films you'd ever seen. I loved seen. it. But it's just, a, like, I enjoyed La La Land, but it's just, it's a very good musical. But you would not, you you did drink the Kool-Aid very much. No, La La Land, because, La La Land yeah. is a much better film than Moonlight. No, no, I, well, I, I, I don't necessarily disagree with that, but I thought it was, I thought it was a good film. I thought it was a really good very, film. Very, very, very different. But for Ollie know. to be like, it's one of the, best films he's ever seen if I said to you now let's watch Singing in the Rain tomorrow you'd be like no way well let's do it but it's like it's just a musical it's like it's a modern musical but there's a whole genre out there for I think, you, I think, I think I was two maybe a bit, bit a bit trigger happy on the Argo score actually mm. maybe 8.5 for Argo but no La La Land was fantastic <laughs> but not one of the uh, best picture winners so not, no. not part of this conversation mm. yeah irrelevant uh, probably Moonlight would be my worst or your least good. Worst is probably a bit hard. Yeah, least favourite. Yeah. I thought Moonlight was very good. But not not as enjoyable as yeah. some other films. But um, probably for me, well, Birdman and No Country for Old Men, maybe. Totally different that No Country for Old Men's almost like, almost like bizarrely close to the book of it. It's just like shot for shot. Um, oh, books are for nerds. Come on. <laughs> yeah. Let's talk about films. Yeah, true. Uh, and Birdman's very different it's like it's all about the way that's filmed and mm. and how odd it is it's basically like one shot isn't it or kind of well made to look shots. like that yeah, yeah. And 
Spotlight got a nine from me as well. Actually, Spotlight might add. Yeah. would be my pick there. But there's a lot, a lot of these films I haven't seen. But of the ones that I have seen, Spotlight really? would be my pick. Yeah, really. Mm. I like Spotlight. I think probably the same as Patrick. No Country for Old Men or um, or Birdman being my favourites from there. And, uh, I, and I would say my least favourite. Argo. It's almost certainly Argo. Yeah. For, for me, and also it's Birdman, not Birdemic, which is also oh, good, right. but it's... Uh, <laughs> yeah. it's uh, I'm not sure that's won any Oscars. Oh, I was Birdemic. really surprised no. to see Birdemic it was, in this list. It, but... it was nominated, wasn't it? But not <laughs> win. So Oscars, I think... Um, do you reckon... So Daniel Day-Lewis has said that he's retiring. He's retired now. He, he'd probably just come back at some point. And because he comes back, it's probably, a, uh, you know, a um, tactical move. Yeah. If he comes back in like ten years, he's always guaranteed to win, however good or bad his performances. But it's a shy to freedy move. That's that's one for the <laughs> one for the cricket fans out there. So, do you think the best actor ones between him and Gary Oldman? I think Gary Oldman's the favourite, isn't he? I, 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 I'd be, I think he'll probably win it. Do you think that Dunkirk has got a good chance of winning Best Picture? I, I mean, as a piece of filmmaking, I think Dunkirk's just absolutely incredible. Do you think it's got a good chance of winning Best Picture? I wouldn't put it. As one of the favourites, but that's a, such a different film as well. Like yeah. it's, it's, I don't know. It's film's really great, great, isn't it? Yeah. You can do a lot of different <laughs> stuff with because Bath, Bath, you love Dunkirk. Compare yeah, like really Dunkirk, Dunkirk to La La Land to mm. yeah, Birdemic. Film <laughs> is good, isn't it? Yeah, yes. I, like, I like films. We all like films. Love the films. only one who doesn't like films is Kerr, apparently. <laughs> well, he doesn't like watching them. No. Yeah. Uh, well, on that bombshell, what's happening next month? What are we talking about on the next episode? So very quickly the next episode will be on Annihilation uh, which we were going to do on this episode but it seemed at the last minute that the well we only found out at the last minute that the rights had actually been sold to, to Netflix which meant that the cinema release got cut and then the release date now on Netflix is the 12th of March so we'll be discussing that and also we'll be discussing The Isle of Dogs by Wes Anderson Wes Anderson's special mm. <laughs> stop, got the monster munch stop out again. eating monster munch Patrick alright I think we better bring it to an end there cheers guys thanks for coming absolute pleasure the pleasure was all mine Dave pleasure bye for now crack on indeed are we all ready you got your little notes yep my notes uh, consist of <laughs> the actor names and the imdb ratings <laughs> next time actually when we get together we can cover annihilation but we're also going to do uh the isle of dogs right. i think because we're going to do about a, the um 
the Guernsey Literary and Potato Peeled Not Pie yet. Society. Not out yet. <laughs> Bit of a mouthful. Uh, Tweet. <laughs> Three out of ten. How many have seen it? Rounding out the cast are Michael Shannon, Richard Jenkins, Doug Jones, and Michael Stuhlberg. And it's rated R for sexual content, graphic nudity, violence, and language. What I loved about that is that you kind of did it in your, like, it was more upbeat again. Rated R for graphic violence. See you all next week.